So I changed my editorial focus for both restaurant reviews and my dining experiences to only write about and showcase and celebrate homegrown concepts. Welcome to a new episode of Most Memorable Journeys. Today's guest is an amazing lady who is based in Dubai, but I came across her quite a few years ago because of her dad. I met her dad when I was a very young tour guide here in Cyprus, and he was a legendary, already then a legendary hotel manager. And then I found out that his daughter was doing some amazing things. She started a company called Foodiva. You're going to have to correct me with that. She's a food writer. She's a PR practitioner. She organizes events. She is anything food you can imagine. And whatever else she does, we are going to find out or or correct in this conversation that I'm going to have with Samantha Wood. Welcome to Most Memorable Journeys. Thank you for having me on, Elizabeth. Thank you for doing this because I know that you're a busy lady. You do a lot of things. And um, I. my first question is, you were born in Cyprus, weren't you? Because I'm based in Cyprus. Yes, Cyprus is my home. So my mother is Cypriot from Famagusta, the occupied part. And my father, as you know him, yes. is actually he's Welsh. <laughs> Oh, that is important. That is very important, yeah. (laughs) He did take us there once, but it rained all the time, so my memories are not that positive. So you decided not to go there anymore. (laughs) Exactly, and I moved to Dubai. Yes, so I was born in Cyprus, and um, my, my early part of my childhood, actually after the Turkish invasion, we moved to the UK and to the Caribbean, but then we went back to Cyprus and I started my schooling there when I was age seven and my sister was, was born there as well. Um, and then I moved to the UK when I was 17 to study and to work, the latter part in London, and then moved to Dubai in 1999, actually, and I've been here ever since. You've been in Dubai since 1999. Dubai has grown and changed since then, hasn't it? I moved here because it was a village and I wanted to escape the rat race of London and also change career slightly. And And look what you've done. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's been the last um, since 2011. Yes, yes. Sort of coming up to... um, Yeah. yeah, Now... I study my guests and I I stalk them and I go through social media and I go through all sorts of things. And I noticed you studied fashion and textile. Is that right? It is. Um, That is correct. So I was at school in Cyprus doing my A-levels. And for some reason, I just thought, I want to be a famous fashion designer. Good for you. (laughs) (laughs) Trying to talk me out of it. in terms of career-wise. But actually, they were quite good about also sort of letting us sort of follow our dreams. But yeah, I just was fixated with this idea. And don't really ask me why, because I don't think I was particularly good at it. I love wearing clothes, and as many a teenager does. But yeah, so I went to the UK. I did um, initially a one-year foundation in art and design in Manchester, hated it. 
the weather and again the weather there's a general theme here and then I moved to Cheltenham to do a, a bachelor's in fashion and textiles but I realized that it wasn't going to be a career for me but I completed my degree and then I worked I moved into PR for fashion and textiles companies so that was kind of my entry into public relations um and that's and I did a couple of jobs in in London um within that within that field yeah. but when I moved one part of the reason for moving to Dubai was I wanted to leave fashion PR I di- I really didn't enjoy it but you liked PR I liked PR but it was the fashion industry it was very cutthroat it was a time when you'd be cold calling all these fashion editors at Vogue because this is pre pre-email almost mm-hmm. as well and just the phone being put down on you really yeah, it's, yeah it's like <laughs> uh, so it wasn't a very nice environment to work in but I did enjoy the PR aspect so when I moved here um, I'd actually came out here on holiday beforehand but I moved because I had a PR job um, working for a PR consultancy and the accounts that my clients were hospitality accounts. So my father loves to say, and again, that's a general theme since you kicked off with my dad, he loves to say that I finally worked in the hospitality industry. Um, But I went through the back door. I believe that it's the most beautiful industry. I was a tour guide when I was young. I have, I feel at home in 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 the hospitality industry, and he is right. <laughs> he he uh, he just it just took a little longer. But there's one thing that you said that I like. You studied fashion and textile, and you actually realized probably that it's not going to be your career, but you finished it. I think that's an important thing. We finish things, don't we? A hundred percent, and and that is and doc from my parents, actually. Uh, we had a very disciplined upbringing. I always, um, and even nowadays, I will always finish something. And, um, and I think that's important. I think one thing that I would say to, to, to parents, to new parents that are bringing up children is that, that ultimately, it, it actually doesn't matter what degree you do, because at that age, it's very hard to know what you want to do for the rest of your mm-hmm. life. I was 17, so a little bit younger than than most. Sometimes it tends to be more sort of 18, 19 now. And um, it, it actually doesn't really matter, unless you're going to be a doctor, obviously, or something where you're going to spend a lot of years studying for it. Um, it doesn't actually matter what degree you do. Um, and actually, I would counsel people to do something broader, like business administration or economics or something that's more financially geared to give you that financial or commercial acumen that will prove useful throughout your life. But yeah, I guess I was able to, for want of a better word, pivot. So yeah, and I sort of got myself, immersed myself into the PR industry, which I absolutely, absolutely loved. So um, where, at some point, where does the food come in? Because at hospitality, yes, you were, I think when I, I looked at your your uh, list of things you did, you also worked in the, you worked in the Hilton, I think, or well, for the Hilton chain? Yes, I worked for, so after the two PR agency roles that I had here, looking after hospitality accounts, actually one of my accounts was Hilton. I actually left 
to freelance and to set up my own PR agency. But in the end, I decided to join. I was approached by Hilton to join them in-house looking after their marketing in the region. So I did that for three years. And then I was promoted into a new role, a corporate comms director role for a bigger region, Middle East and Africa. Yes. So that was my, I guess, my my entry as well into hospitality industry. Now, I always swore I would never work in it (laughs) from an operations perspective because I saw how much um, it had engulfed my my father's life. I mean, it's it's a twenty four seven job. Um, Very true. When you're a manager of a hotel, weekends are are not are not your own. I mean, we would. The great thing for uh, growing up within it is we we were able to enjoy the perks of it um, and stay in amazing <laughs> hotels um, and travel and travel the world. But I I did love that industry. So I really enjoyed my time with Hilton, but I wanted to do something of my own. So I decided to leave. Um, I did not know that I would end up doing what I'm doing. I had some ideas, but I actually traveled to Japan and China with my mom. So I, I, I left my job, took, gave them three months notice, left, traveled, and I realized um, I started this very amateur food blog mm-hmm. as a way of keeping in touch with friends because I was very, I was only on LinkedIn. I was, wasn't even on Facebook at the time, but my friend said, oh, we've got to keep in touch with you. And I loved writing and I'd always enjoy dining from a consumer perspective. And I cooked a little bit because uh, we travel so much. My parents were, were very good at taking us to restaurants with them. Um, McDonald's was, we had to beg to go to McDonald's as as kids, really. So I had a very sophisticated palate. And um, I started writing about everything that I was eating on holiday or in my travels in Japan and China and absolutely loved it. So I came back here and my ex-boss, who um, has been a mentor to me all these years, suggested that I look at the blogs in the US because it was becoming a bit of a trend at the time and see if I could make this into a business here. I realized that there really was no true restaurant criticism here in Dubai. We had Time Out at the time that was Mm -hmm. quite strong. I don't think they are so much um, now when it comes to their restaurant reviews. And I wanted to, to start a restaurant review website that was impartial, no freebies policy, i.e. I accept no invitations in return for reviews because that is the only way you can write an honest review, um, in my opinion. I benchmarked it against the restaurant critics in London for The Times, The Guardian, The Observer, Evening Standard, all of those. And um, and essentially, I launched a restaurant review website. Um, again, when I look back at it, very amateur at the time, but I had a business plan. I, I come from having worked for Hilton. I, I developed a very um, astute sort of the, my business acumen was very, very strong. Anything I had to do had to support the business. So there had to be a commercial element to it. So I was very strong early on at monetizing this. 
Um, it wasn't just about me going out and dining at expensive restaurants and, and writing about it. I needed to be able to offset those expenses against a, a business model. So that's essentially how it um, how it launched. And I approach it very much from the aspect of I am re reflecting the consumer. So when I go into a restaurant um, to dine with a guest, it's it's usually my husband because he's the best plus one and understands the experience as much as me. And um, I will go in and I will pretend to be a consumer and see, okay, what are they looking for? So that's reflected in my writing of that dining experience. So when you go to a restaurant, the restaurant does not know, or I'm sure people know you in Dubai now, but generally the restaurant does not know that you're coming. A hundred percent. They do not know. And I always book under a pseudonym. Um, I do have guest reviewers and I brought them on a few years ago because I was beginning to be recognized. Mm -hmm. So I will do a lot of research before selecting a restaurant to go in. I, I, only review new openings. And as a result of the pandemic, only homegrown concepts, which we can talk about separately. If exactly. Like. Because I was reading, I was going through your, your Instagram and I keep seeing that word. What does it mean, homegrown? Yeah, that's a good question, actually. It's essentially Dubai-born concepts. Ah, so, not a chain or something. 100%. So um, initially, when I started... Dubai was Dubai's restaurant scene was all about imported concepts, celebrity chefs coming in on royalties, opening restaurants at the likes of the Atlantis. And we had very few locally developed concepts. Now, that doesn't need to be Emirati. It, um, it could be any cuisine, uh, but it is about chefs and restaurateurs investing pretty much their own money here in opening their own restaurant. So as a result of COVID, I had huge demand to support the local community, like there was globally in terms of the support local movement. And I created a social media campaign called Hashtag UAE Restaurants Unite, which was about supporting the local community. So I changed my editorial focus for both restaurant reviews and my dining experiences to only write about and showcase and celebrate homegrown concepts. That's a good thing. That is really supporting the, the local, whatever you call it, but the, 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 the thing there. So do you like to cook? Are you are you a good cook? I do cook. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm a good cook. You'll have to, <laughs> I also have to judge that. But um, I am a recipe cook. So I am not a creative cook. So I will take a recipe. I've got nearly 100 cookbooks. I adore collecting cookbooks. And I will cook from those recipes. And actually something that happened over lockdown was because of the lack of access to supermarkets and getting groceries um, delivered on time, um, I we subscribe to a meal plan service. But where not where the food is delivered ready, where you boxes are delivered. I'm not sure. I don't think there is one in Cyprus because I've looked at it for when I'm there. But um, essentially, you get three to four recipe boxes delivered every week 
and you cook to those recipes. So you minimize food wastage. It's amazing. It's actually you get the ingredients. You get the ingredients to a dish. Everything, a hundred percent. So I get every Monday. I don't do it every week. It depends on how busy our weeks are and how often we're going to be in versus out. But every Monday, I would will get, or most Mondays, I will get three boxes delivered for that week of different recipes. And it's amazing because you end up trying, and they're very relatively simple to make. And it reignited my love for cooking because I didn't have to worry about, okay, let me get 10 different spices in that I'm only ever going to use once. Exactly. An ingredient um, and source all these unusual ingredients. Whereas now I have everything here and I can just spend an hour cooking and you have this amazing meal. That's fantastic. That's an amazing concept. I think we it is. It's quite we... prevalent in the UK and other other markets, actually, but um, not in Cyprus yet. I've also, um, as I told you, I'm sto- I've stalked you for the last uh, because I want to be prepared when I speak to somebody. I see that you travel, um, and I note I was. I mean, this is sort of a, a, a maybe a bit of a stupid question, but do you have a favorite food? Do you have a favorite food region? I, I will be biased. I do love Cypriot and Greek food. We're very lucky here, actually. We have amazing Greek questions. There isn't a Cypriot one yet, but um, the quality of Greek cuisine here is very, very high. So I I love that. But I have two other favorite cuisines as well. I have Iranian. Oh. And that's because my, one of my two best friends in Cyprus that I grew up with is Iranian. So we would go to her house and her mother would cook this incredible spread of Iranian food. Mm. And we also have relatively good Iranian cuisine here as well. And I've also visited Iran as well. And the third one is Japanese. Right. I, again, I fell in love with it when I visited in 2010. But it's just, it's such a clean, precise cuisine. And it reflects a lot about me and my personality, actually. I love the simplicity of it. I love the the fish market there, sushi, sashimi, and just the very, the strong focus on quality ingredients. Amazing. My my daughter's traveled in Iran and she actually did a cooking class a day or something. And and she came home, she came back here and she cooked a few things. I mean, she loves to cook as well. And it's just so beautiful. And it's such a misunderstood country, but that's for another podcast, isn't it? It is. Yes. (laughs) So going to a restaurant, talking about being a food critic, what is the, what, what do you look at? What is the most important, like the first impression or how does it work? Can you just tell me a little bit about how you go about this? Yes, yeah, sure. Actually, I would say I am a, a restaurant critic more than a food critic. I know my Instagram says food critic, but that's because it doesn't give you the option of restaurant. <laughs> okay. And um, and the reason I say that is it's because it's not just about the food. The food is obviously important, but it's about the whole dining experience. So when I'm going into review, I am reviewing on six parameters. Food, yes, and that's everything from flavor, technique, ingredients, presentation. 
Service is vitally important. Location, interior, atmosphere, and value for money. And, and to give you an example in terms of why it's not just food, um, food has to be good. But the reason people go back to restaurants time and time again is because they are wowed by the service. Because if the service is mediocre and it's not warm and friendly, they're not going back. It doesn't matter how good that food is. But provided the food is okay, it doesn't need to wow you because you could have just really good home-cooked food, for instance. But if the service is really warm, you're going to remember that and you're going to go back time and time again. So I rate service just as highly as food. Yeah, I could not agree with you more. And I think this is one, this used to be one of the biggest secrets here in Cyprus. It has changed a lot as well. But this famous Cypriot hospitality that brought yes. people from all over the world. I used to have, when I was a tour guide, I used to have the same Swiss coming through Cyprus three times a year. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Cyprus is renowned for repeat tourism. And it's almost, it's, it's like a bug. And I meet people here that, have just visited once recently, for instance, and they're like, oh my goodness, we cannot wait to go back. It's that warmth of hospitality that wherever you go, it's like you're going to someone's house. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We have that a little bit in the, in, in the Arab world as well. They're renowned for their hospitality as well, very much so. Yes. And I love that. And I think this is one thing that I'm from Switzerland originally, but this is one, one part that I love. You know, I love this part of the world, the Middle East and the Gulf because of the hospitality. And I think as a, as a, as a, a host or as, as a woman, my biggest problem is always to, you know, people could leave my house, be it not, not, having had enough to eat. <laughs> I think this is a definitely a Cypriot thing that I have adopted. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, very much so. Yes. Now, the other thing that I have noticed in your, what you do, you're an event organizer. What kind of events? That's one thing. I don't know, maybe if if we can combine this question or, or this explanation. And what is a three chefs dinner? Well, they're intertwined, actually. So yeah. I a few years ago, actually, back in um, 2015, I launched Dining Experiences. Now, the reason for that was because I was being asked by my following to tour them around restaurants. So I created at the time a concept called Dine Around Dubai, which was essentially an upscale restaurant tour, taking in anything from three to five restaurants in one night, serving a different course, um, typically within walking distance or a short car drive. And I would tour a group of 12 to 15 guests. That then morphed into, it was a, it's a, it's a brilliant concept and I still do it for bespoke requests but it was very time consuming to organize um, and to monetize it given you only have 12 to 15 guests. So I decided, okay, let's flip this on its head and do a three chefs dinner where essentially I take guests to one restaurant with three different chefs from different restaurants cooking a different course. So you almost get the same experience, but you don't have to leave. And that way you, you can eat and drink a lot more. Again, it's very upscale, it's ticketed. We start with champagne, there's a wine pairing option, and you have 
each chef will serve. So I'll have one chef that will do canapes and starters, another chef, usually the host chef that will do main courses, and then a pastry chef desserts, each cooking three to four dishes served sharing style. So, and in a very upscale, high-end restaurant. So you get this wonderful experience where you're bringing different guests from all walks of life with a with a shared passion for food and socializing together. And we have a sharing style set up in terms of the table. So guests will typically sit um, with people, with new friends that they end up making. So it's a great, um, com- there's a great community feel to it. Um, so that forms part of the dining experiences that I organize. And that that's a ticketed event. It's usually one a quarter. They're, they're mammoth events now. They're sort of 90 to 120 guests. They're like weddings to organize, but for paying guests. So they're very stressful. And Tony, uh, sorry, I, I'm yeah. interrupting you. This means that you're actually, you're bringing a chef from another restaurant to this restaurant to yeah. cook? Yes, 100%. So I build, so for instance, the last one was East Asian, Japanese, Chinese, and Korean. Okay. So the host restaurant was Japanese, and that was Reef Japanese Kushiaki, and they took care of main courses. I brought in a chef from June's restaurant, which has a Chinese, is Chinese inspired. So Kelvin was cooking um, canapes and starters. And then I brought in a pastry chef with East Asian experience cooking, serving desserts. Um, So, yes, you have two guest chefs, as I like to call them, coming in to cook in one restaurant. And I bring these chefs together. Sometimes they know each other. Sometimes they don't. But one thing's for sure, they bond and the friendships that these these chefs and also the guests that have made at these dinners carry on afterwards. I've had guests, for instance, that have met at my early dinners in 2015 and have become firm friends and now come to the dinners together. So it's um it's very it's very social, both from the, the chef experience and the guest experience as well. That's amazing. Amazing concept. Do you do, do these people are these people based in Dubai or are there actually people coming? I only I only work with chefs based here. Again, it's in line with my homegrown concept. So it's not about celeb chefs coming in here and and working with them. And and the guests, I mean, a, a tourist can sign up, but it's not like a food tour where I'm running them every night. So that date is gonna have to work for them. So it's primarily foodie residents of of Dubai and sometimes Abu Dhabi. But that could be a a reason for a trip to to go to. Yeah, I have people actually that live in Ras Al Khaimah that come to Dubai and will overnight because of my uh, experience. I think that's fantastic. It's amazing. Let's talk a little bit about, I mean, Dubai, okay, Dubai is a huge town with a huge food scene. And uh, I think it must be quite overwhelming the amount of restaurants that there are. Yes, it is. And that's one of the reasons I started Fudiva was to be able to showcase and to bring to light the amazing talent that we have here. 
and and almost to shortlist it. And, and, and that's why I every year in February, I publish an annual guide of my sort of top Dubai restaurants. Because the number one question I always get is, where should I go? Where's your favorite restaurant? And it's very hard. I don't have one favorite. I always say it would be like picking your favorite child. It's very unfair to do that. There are so many restaurants. So I put together this guide of it could be anything from 30 to 40 restaurants across different cuisines, different districts, licensed versus unlicensed. And to explain that, License here means serving alcohol. Unlicensed is without alcohol because we have restrictions here um, on as to where. Yeah, we can that's serve. right. Yeah. So it's Dubai food paradise. Is there any cuisine in Dubai that's not available? Anything? I mean, I think no, I don't think there is actually. Um, bizarrely, and it's a, and I'm, we can talk about this as well, but we don't have a huge amount of Emirati food in restaurants. It is changing. Uh, we have a lot of broader Middle Eastern um, food, and obviously the Levantine segment is highly represented here. But Emirati food is just coming out of the home into restaurants, and it and it needs to be refined um, to be able to serve it to, ser to serve it in restaurants. So it is changing, but we don't have a lot of it. Whereas you go to Cyprus and everything you eat is Cypriot primarily. It's the opposite problem. Yeah, more and more. I mean, we, we do get, uh, you know, it has been mixed up a lot as well here yeah. in Cyprus, as you probably noticed. But yes, it is. Um, but, you know, it's getting a little bit more difficult here as well to find a good taverna. And I think sometimes it's a shame. It, it should be it should be sort of balanced and not uh, one or the other extreme. Now, a little bit about traveling, because I you do like to travel, don't you? Um, of course, I do love, love traveling, actually. And I struggled very much over lockdown. Tell me about yeah. it. That's Even why I started this podcast, yeah. because yes. I couldn't travel anymore. I needed to talk about it. I know, I know. And I think as a result of that, we're, we're now more grateful for the travel that we can do. Yeah, you have a most memorable journey because my podcast is called Most Memorable Journeys. Gosh, you know it's it's very hard. You know, I'll go, I'll go back to Cyprus, given something that you you mentioned earlier, and I I don't know if you came across it in your research, but I have a guide to Cyprus that I first published in I think it was 2015, 2016. Can't remember now actually. No, I didn't see. Yeah, I thought I saw everything. <laughs> and I'll send it to you. I I update it every year, every summer that I go back, because it's what well, one thing with Cyprus. I feel more than a lot of other countries. If you do not do your research, you will not eat well in Cyprus. Um, you will end up in the tourist traps. And you have to go off the beaten track to and hire a car and find these little tavernas in the middle of nowhere. And that's what this culinary travel guide is about. Um, it's about pinpointing those tavernas across Cyprus. Um, so to help tourists going there. And and that's that's the backbone to I to the culinary. So every time I travel to a new city, I will come back and I will pull together a culinary travel 
by because I spend actually a lot more time researching the country than actually visiting it. For instance, now we're actually taking my dad. I'm coming back to Cyprus for Christmas, but then we're taking my dad just after to Malta. Um, it's a trip down memory lane for him. He hasn't been in years. I actually went back with my mum a good few years ago. But I have spent so much time researching where to eat, and I absolutely love it. Um, I love the, the research element. So it's very hard to, yeah, to pinpoint um, a favorite city. I go back to what I mentioned earlier, Japan, again, probably because that's that was the inspiration for Fudiva. I love Iran. Again, it's completely underrated. I visit London. London is probably because of my heritage and having lived there. It's probably the one city I return to time and time again. Also, my husband is Australian. He's from Sydney. The food scene there is incredible, absolutely incredible. You have world-class food there. And despite the fact that it's so far away, and what I love, a little bit like South Africa, actually, we visited Cape Town and Franschek last Christmas. And um, the access to ingredients ensures that everything that you eat is locally sourced. You have incredible seafood and incredible meat um, on your doorstep, as long as along with sort of fruit and vegetables, etc. Um, and the, the creativity with the chefs there is is second to none. So again, I think they're also because they're a little bit further away than other countries, they're they're very, very underrated. Fantastic. I would love to have that Cyprus guide that you mentioned. I didn't see yes, that yeah. anywhere. Um, it's probably buried, uh, buried because it is quite old, but I do um, do update it every year. And actually, it's my most read culinary travel guide. I think because a lot of people do know that I'm Cypriot, they do come to me for it as well. Yeah. Well, this is the thing. I am because food and talking about food and I love talking to you about all this and I, I I sort of when I talk about food with people and this kind of culture it, it warms my heart and I think if we don't don't you think if we connected a little bit more through food there could be a little bit of better understanding in the world oh yes a hundred percent and um you see what's happening now with um with Palestine and Israel I have been we we have a very strong Palestinian community here, and I have Palestinian friends. I am very and I'm very vocal about be, being pro Palestine. Always have been, um, and I think it's very very sad what's happening at the moment. And and I've been trying in my own little way to support Palestinian owned businesses here. So I've been running a little bit of a campaign. I did some research. I asked my following, because um, it's not just about Palestinian restaurants. It's about those that are owned by Palestinians. Because, again, similar to the support local movement over COVID, people want to support Palestinian businesses here because they all have family um, there that are suffering at the moment. So any anything that we can do, any any money that we can give towards that, um, aside to, to actual donations through charities, et cetera, is, is beneficial. 
I yeah. agree. And good for you. Good for you for being vocal. And also at the end of the day, when you look at the area where we are, where I am and where you are and what's in between us, it's not just Palestine. I mean, when you look at all the beautiful Syrian food that we could eat and all the beautiful Jordanian food and whatever, the whole the whole area is beautiful hospitality, beautiful food, beautiful spices and beautiful colors with hospitable people. Yes, yeah, uh, 100%. I mean, the, and we're, we're very lucky here. We can go to a Syrian restaurant. We can go to a Lebanese restaurant. We can go to a Palestinian restaurant. You ha- And the, the cuisines are quite, what once you immerse yourself in them, are actually quite different as well. They're not as similar um, as everyone thinks they are. Which is, has been said by somebody who understands food because <laughs> you see that and that I think that's the beauty about finding it's it's about understanding the differences and also sort of combining the similarities and respecting each other. Food is a food, it could be politics or is politics in my views. Yes, and it and it brings people around the table. I mean, I see it with the the dining experiences I organize. I also do bespoke ones for um for clients, for events, etc., um, when if they have a, if uh, a client or a guest has a particular theme in mind, but it just it doesn't matter what your political view is. Um, if you're sitting around a table with incredible food, you will bond um, because it becomes a talking point as well. I think that is just a perfect because we're coming to the end. I think this is a perfect ending to a, to to this podcast episode. It's about bonding and it's about understanding and respecting each other's feelings and way of thinking. And uh, the best way to do it is through food. Yes, a hundred percent. Yeah, it's all about you. Food unites people together, and restaurants, I feel, unite. Yes, because because you're going out to eat so restaurants have a crucial role to play in all of that fantastic keep going and keep eating and keep telling us about it (laughs) thank you so much for being on most memorable journey samantha wood thank you very much elizabeth i can't believe the time has whizzed by so quickly i've really you see i told you at the beginning (laughs) (laughs) we'll find it because people often ask me what are we going to talk about for 40 minutes but when you have a good conversation 40 minutes pass very quickly it does yeah you ask the best questions thank you if you enjoy my podcast please like, share and subscribe to my channel. You will find all the information in the show notes.